Hey everybody, it's John. I wanted to remind you that we do have a Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash alien minute. Over there on Patreon, Mitch and I discuss subjects concerning movies and television and just about anything else we want to talk about. So uh, if you want to come over there, you can subscribe for $2 a month for one episode or $5 a month for every episode at patreon.com forward slash alien minute. Thank you. Hello everybody and welcome back to the Quadfecta, the podcast where we discuss whether a filmmaker has managed to make four truly great films in a row. I'm John Engel. And I'm Mitch Bryan. And today we are joined by the one and only friend, farmer, film expert, former video store clerk, Jason Heck. And friend of the working man, Jason Heck. I always forget that. Gentlemen, I can't tell you how great it is to be back with, with you two, my my two favorite film geeks. I'm, I couldn't be more excited talking about John Carpenter. Oh, well, he just announced who we're talking about. Um, that's right. We're talking about John Carpenter today on the Quadfecta. I had asked John whether he was a, a Carpenter acolyte as a kid. And he said no, which really surprised me. But Jason, you've been like a huge John Carpenter fan since you were knee-high to the proverbial grasshopper, right? Don't, with John being the exception, as he so often is, a bit of a maverick, I will say that I, I think all movie geeks, or at least genre lovers, have been in love with John Carpenter from the moment they probably saw Halloween uh, on some Halloween screening, right? I mean, his movies are... They are the genre, and it doesn't matter if the genre is horror or or magic and martial arts. It doesn't matter. It's uh, yeah, of course I'm in love with John Carpenter. Even drove to Milwaukee to see him play his music. That was pretty interesting. Is that where you got me the signed Escape from New York poster? That is where I got you the signed Escape from New York poster. And he said, "Is this for a little crippled boy?" And I said, <laughs> "Yes, it is." I said, "Yes, it is. Please sign it for free." And he did. So it's what I call the Fake a Wish Foundation. <laughs> and I, I traded you back, right? I gave you that French Escape from New York that I have, right? Didn't I give you uh, that? You gave me Megaforce. No, no, no. I know I gave it's you Megaforce. John Carpenter I, movie. I it's true. I know, but I did. I thought I gave you that real, that small French, um, like it's a quarter sheet. Yes, and, it's, and it is. It's in the guest bathroom next to my Oscar. I yes. thought so. I thought so. Which was actually Angel Lansbury's Oscar. A guy picked it up at an auction. But yes. Really? Yes. Escape from New York is one of my favorites. But we're talking about four amazing movies. And John, we, I have to say, you being a late arrival to John Carpenter sort of sort of shocks me. Well, I didn't. I was raised in a strict Christian household that didn't allow me to watch things like uh, Halloween or any of these movies. So I had to find them on my own. And I'll, I'll be honest, a lot of people that I knew, it never came up. I don't know why. I didn't have a whole lot of people say, oh, you haven't seen The Thing? Oh, you haven't seen Escape from New York? I know I saw Escape from New York fairly early on. I know I saw uh, Big Trouble in Little China. Um, I'm trying to think of what else. I saw like the Memoirs of an Invisible Man, you know, stuff like that, yeah, which is not um, spo- spoilers for the podcast. We're not talking about that one today. But, um, ever, ever, or ever. <laughs> Can we just talk about that scene where Sam Neill has the gun glued to his head Ever. and he's running around like? Ever, anyway. I said. No, I. Hey, now, right now, was then never Sam again. Sam Neill okay? in that agree? movie. 
Uh-huh. Oh yeah, he's the villain. Oh, wow. Oh, Jason, you're, I think you're, 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 um, microphone may be too close to your mouth now. So too you got to move. Yeah, too, too close. close. A little better. Gentlemen. When you, when you exhale fire, I can hear it. Well, I thought, oh, I thought he was just, I thought he was just standing on a, on a bluff somewhere with the occasional wind gust. No, a naturalistic I, I feel. As Mitch will tell you, I'm a hard loving, hard breathing man and hard fighting. <laughs> so yeah. And hard eating actually, which is terrible. I think Memoirs of an Invisible Man is the cutoff, and everything after that is kind of, it, it ranges from so-so to good, but all the great stuff is before that. D- don't you think he, like, maybe scratched it great with, um, with uh, uh, In the Mouth of Madness? Yeah, yeah scratched, scratched that. So, he, I mean, oh, he is close. Well, that, that B+, plus, but not A. Mm, it's B plus I don't know. I don't mm. think so. I think that's A- minus for sure. Really? I give it an A. I definitely put it in the A territory. That's that's to me. That's the last of his really great films, and I don't know if I'm not saying really it's as great, great as wow. the movies we're going to talk wow. about today. I love it. I think it's I do fantastic. too. I love it too. I, yeah. I don't think I loved it when it first came out as much as I love it now. I think I've kind of returned to it and warmed up. And then I was very enthusiastic about vampires when it came out, and now I'm like, ooh, that's, yeah. I can't. Even. You were enthusiastic about yeah, after you watched it, or when before? it first came out, I loved it. The first time I saw it, I thought it was really great, and then really? I saw it again, and I was like, ooh, boy, I was, I was, I was in a good mood that day. It has a great so. first fifteen minutes. Like the first fifteen minutes of Vampires really sucks you in with you know James Woods being a hard ass and his cool crew of badasses. And after that, the the just toboggans downhill for me, and, and it <laughs> yeah. kind of and it kind of gets really inert too, like this long, dead patch in the middle with you know would you have uh, Daniel Baldwin to anchor your movie? I mean, yeah, the yeah. lumpiest of all Baldwins, the worst of all possible Baldwins. So it's fine, it's fine, mm-hmm. it's fine. You know, it's it opened at number one, it opened at number one its weekend, so that's something. Now, I wonder how many million. times did, that happened for Carpenter. Did, did Children of the Damned open at number one? <laughs> did anybody even see uh, that movie when it came out? I did. It was a huge bomb, I think, the wasn't Kansas it? City chapter of the Christopher Reeve fan club and the Kirstie Alley <laughs> fan club chapter of the Midwest. Yeah. I went to I I, bought, I rented out a theater for a screening. Mm-hmm. We had 19 members show up, um, and and we had a, a good, I think, 40-something call sick. But, yeah, yeah, we I saw it, so. I, I saw, saw, well, saw everything of his right up until the ward, and then I was content to wait for video. So it was really lucky that you were the the president of both the Kirstie Alley and Christopher Reeve chapter, like, <laughs> and they just happened to collide in one movie directed by one of your favorite filmmakers. That must have been someday. That was flirting with uh, a sort of "what dreams may come" type scenario for me. Like yeah. this is my heaven on earth, and then um, no one. It was just mine, mine alone, and no one else's. Mm-hmm. Also, I love hair bleach. So all those little children with their hair snow white were just, ugh, I loved it. Loved it. Big fan of bleach. I have been planning to watch Ghost of Mars again just to see if it's what I think it was. I'm thinking maybe there's something there, but I haven't been able to uh, get that to happen. Do we remember the name of Ice Cube's character in that movie? I don't. I believe Desolation Williams. Wow, so, not quite the same as Napoleon. No, Napoleon Wilson name? is that Wilson. Napoleon Wilson, Darwin Justin. Yeah, it's it, there was a guy who just died way too early and who's underutilized. Nice to see him in the fog, well, though. 
little little walk on in the fog. I'm trying to remember where so that is. Where is he? He's Doctor Fibes in the fog. He's Doctor oh, okay. Fibes. He's the he does the autopsy on on Dick Baxter. Okay. Who died in the ocean? Supposedly, yeah. Ghost. You know what? It, yeah, it's it. You're. It's really a big. So from. So in the mouth of madness caps it off, as John says, kind of the last. And and Mitch, I think you're in accord there. And after that, it's Village of the Damned, which is a precipitous plunge in quality. And clearly, you know, the his film geek self wanting to remake a movie that was important to him as a kid. And then Escape from L.A., which was the colossal Oof. misfire, which every everybody was so excited. My God, I remember how excited I was. Oh, me too. LA. <gasps> oh, man. And then we saw it on opening night, me and best friend Tony, who was like a huge John Carpenter fan. We were so stoked. And that movie was the biggest wet fart of a movie. It was so... <laughs> Just offensively uninteresting, given yeah. all the elements in it. I was I was angry at the movie. I'm like, this is you had all of this money because they had such a huge budget, and and that's what they did with it. Mm. Mm. Awful. I was so angry walking out yeah. of the theater. Yeah, I was pretty mad too. And then what was after that? Then then after that, uh, was... and then vampires. You know, which is based on a great IP. The the novel Vampires is really good. Like it's yeah. a really John Stakely did it, and it's really really good and really just acerbic and and nihilistic and violent and great. And Carpenter, you know, I I don't know if he was slowing down, getting tired, getting yeah. uninteresting, or relying on James playing Woods video games. And just we know he loves playing them. video games. You know, he he writes music for video games. He yeah. loves video games, and he smokes yeah. a ton of weed. Loves yep. weed. Good. Sandy Good for King him. once told me he almost burned down one of their homes by trying to dry <laughs> a brick of weed in the microwave without taking the foil off. And that's straight from his mm. wife. So, one who knows. <laughs> and then Ghosts of Mars, which I've seen once deliberately, and I think I stumbled over it again and tried to give it another chance. Maybe. Mitch, maybe we need to do a basement screening at your place and try and focus on it. I don't maybe. know. Maybe. That could be I good. Or backyard. That could be good. Something. Backyard. Yeah, Something. you guys have fun John, with I'm that. I'm curious, what do you think about? Uh, well, what do you think about Ghost of Mars, John Engel? Oh, I didn't like it even slightly. I did. Ooh. I barely even remember it. Same with yeah. Vampires. It's those movies. I was like, I don't know. I don't know what to say about them because they're not nearly as great as the movies we're going to actually talk mm. about today, mm. which are, um, you know, those for those of you listening that maybe have never listened to a Quadfect episode before. The idea here is that we're going to talk about four movies or maybe more, but usually just four movies by a director um, to see if they really accomplish like what the original baseline being the Coppola quadfecta were four truly great movies in a row. Very difficult task. Some of the greats couldn't do it. We talk about it to try to figure it out. And we don't exactly, uh, we don't necessarily reveal what the movies are until we start talking about them. So which one do we want to start with? Do we go in order? We don't go in order. Usually we don't. That way there's a little mystery. It could Mitch go Brian, one way or another. Your... Oh no, we're not sure. Mitch Bryan, do you have a four-sided coin you can flip? <laughs> Sam has, my son has all of our multi-face sure dice. You're he's taking them, sure he's he taking them all. He's taking them all. I would guess anything dice-based, Sam probably has he's taken He's got them. The yeah, there's yeah. not a dice in the house. Uh, well, let's start with Escape from New York. Let's do, it. Right. let's do it. New York, 1997. The entire city is a walled maximum security prison. Bridges are mined. The rivers are patrolled. 
and the United States Police Force has everything under control. I'm going in. John Carpenter's Escape from New York, the high adventure of the future. One man must go in where no man has ever gotten out. John Carpenter's Escape from New York, the greatest escape of them all, is about to blow the future apart. Who would have thought this was shot in St. Louis? East St. East St. <laughs> Louis, buddy. East St. Louis. Oh, yeah. you know they when they were filming, I heard stories that the that the cicadas were so loud. You know they that they hadn't planned on cicadas, and they got there and they're shooting at night in the summer in St. Louis, and you know this is cicada country, and it was blowing all their sound takes. Really? Yeah, I can imagine. You know, if you're, you know, I had a friend visit from L.A. once. And um, she was, and it was high summer, and she was completely. She thought it was like a car alarm at first. She's like, "What is that?" Because you know it was the stridulation and stuff. And I'm like, "You don't have cicadas in Cal?" No. So maybe they were unprepared. Well, it's we were all a little unprepared for Escape from New York. Man, you know? I had so much fun the first time I saw that movie. You know, it was just another one of those moments when you see a movie and you just feel like the the filmmaker gets it and on some level they're making it just for you you know it's like it's just has it has everything you could possibly want in a pulpy movie about new york being turned into a maximum security prison yeah. i mean the idea yeah. of it is so outrageously fantastic that uh i was like you're i'm in like this is this is going to be great now did you when did you did you see it in the theater i did yeah oh man so the zeitgeist the whole post-Watergate thing, the country, you know, because Carpenter talks about it being his response to, you know, the hard turn into conservatism and law and order that he saw. Was that kind of something that you you were in tune with as you saw it? I I think that it has a nihilistic edge at the mm. end, you know, obviously when he sure. destroys the future of the world. <laughs> um, and I, I, I mean, I got it. I thought it had a... I thought it was had a snotty quality to it and and was and felt very independent, you know, mm. but also felt like like he was, you know, one of us making a movie that kind of feeling, you know, that he he I got the frequency pretty pretty clearly. And then the presidential basketball that that uh, Donald Pleasance escapes from the plane in. I mean, there are these Wait. moments of just complete absurdity, you know, that it's just the life like egg. Yeah. The, the, the okay. Life it's egg. clear to me, it's clear to me in much the way that, that many conspiracy theorists believe that the government has alien technology, you know, already in place, that that was clearly from, you know, Mork's time at area, <laughs> area 51, where they had taken him. I mean, to me, I looked at that and I was like, that's Mork's ship. Like clearly they got that technology from, from Ork. Um, I think Steve so. Ford, as a, as a, as the Secret Service agent, when he's banging on the door of the cockpit, actually mutters Shazbot because he can't break yeah. the door open. <laughs> exactly. we should, for anybody not paying attention or not paying, reading the credits, that Steve Ford, who Jason's talking about, was the son of of President Gerald R. Ford, and who had a great role in Starship Troopers 
too. Uh, actually, he gets killed pretty quick when they land, but it was nice to see him in that another genre movie. But yes, it's the life egg, and I love the the absolute sincerity of the president's "God save me and watch over you all" as he quickly hits that exit <laughs> button and plunges out of the plane. God, it's it says he's such a cynical turd. And then, I love it. And Donald Pre- Pleasance as the president of the United States. I mean, the guy that you that whenever there's a movie with a group of people together, except for maybe the Great Escape, he's like the one guy you don't want on the team you know it's like last for your team for we're sure. taking him with us when we shrink down to go into the body really that's who's going with us <laughs> so he turns out to be the president you know with a kind of um interesting mid-atlantic accent is it, is it well yeah i don't know what it Alabama is and a hint of, of, of georgia coastal it's such a weird accent he chooses yeah weird i just choice. always think of him as uber brit my first uh, Donald Pleasant's experience was the Great Escape, and he's right. desperately steeping tea at all times. He's like the sure. u- uber British man, yeah. and it's and so having him be the president of the United States is kind of I f- I think it's funny. I think it seems to be. I mean, it's partially just Carpenter having a relationship with him already right. from from Halloween, but um, there still seems to be almost a tongue in cheek kind of uh, joke there about. Don't the you think? I mean, because we go from the Great Escape where he's like, "I'm the forger." And then he's all of a sudden, what about lifting the door off with the hinges? And it's like, what the hell accent are you doing, dude? What What it's is great. that? But it, I think I, I, he's got to be having fun with it, right? And yeah. he's got to be. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody in this movie's having fun. That's one of the th- I think that's kind of what Mitch is saying. Like, to me, it feels like like pl- toys in a playground, but with a much more adult kind of dark sens- sensibility than like, say star Wars, you know? Mm-hmm. So it- it's just like, well, screw it. We can have any kind of character. We could have any kind of, you know, ridiculous idea that we want for what, uh, for, for these, all these characters in this world. And um, it's just a blast, you know? And yet everybody seems to be playing it. Like maybe I'm wrong. It, uh, nobody's playing it up too much though. Right? Like everybody seems to be, in the world and not right. overplaying their roles. So we're, we could have easily gotten that, in the, like, say, the aforementioned Megaforce, right? Like, mm-hmm. if you have Hal Needham directing this movie, it's at, like, 15, you know? I right? don't even want to tell one... you how far Cabby's cab would have jumped. I don't even want to tell you. <laughs> well, yeah, that would have been, we would have at least seen, the, we would have actually seen the egg. Someone would have been in the egg when it was dropped from. <laughs> Some stunt in Gotta get that stunt. <laughs> Dar, Dar Robinson, he did. Drop oh, by yeah. crane, oh. drop by crane. <laughs> yeah, I, I I agree that I think the hammiest moment is is probably Pleasant shrieking a number one and emptying the gun into the Duke. But aside from that, I think you're right. It's everybody is weirdly inhabiting the world and not winking as they do it. Even though you know these dudes are wearing hubcaps for armor and bandanas and stuff in the in the Union Station when they for the for the for the death match with Ox Baker. Um, yeah, everybody's kind of doing a great job, aren't they? They kind of and, and yeah. Harry Dean is really committed. Like I totally believe Harry Dean's reality one hundred percent in the movie. He, he literally chuckles and rubs his hands together for Christ's sake, right? I mean, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty, pretty big, but not too big. Yeah, it's I, it's it's a really, really, really great movie. I mean, it's it's Carpenter's score. At, at, at peak awesomeness. He's not a great action director generally, but the movie isn't really an action movie. It's not. There, it's... there are a couple of chases, a couple of fights. Right. Um, but, you know, generally Carpenter isn't really great at action. You know, I'm, I'm sure he had a lot of help 
with um with with big trouble in little china but but you know this movie isn't really an action movie and to a certain extent it's kind of hard to categorize is it sci-fi is it a thriller is is it sort of action drama it's a, film. a single man on an adventure a man on a mission movie in a way a crew of one sure well we'll probably talk about this more but he's not i don't think he's interested in action that much He's typically more interested in atmosphere, which sounds kind of weird. I don't mean that in the same sense as some other directors, but um, he lingers sometimes for a long time on certain shots, and that seem to be almost establishing shots. Or um, in some movies, he'll hold on things or like follow track with characters for much longer than most uh, directors would. So I think he's just more interested in immer- like immersing the viewer into the world, and then you know having the story. Uh, you know, once you're in, then the story takes off and you're with it. So I think and he does a great job. But I will say that in the first the first 10 minutes always kind of surprised me. I always forget. I've probably seen this movie a dozen times by now. I always forget that we meet Snake before anything happens. And I don't know why that always strikes me as a little odd. And it strikes me so odd that I forget it. I always think that that walk, the walkthrough when we get Snake, um, where we first meet him, which really nothing happens at all there other than we see him walk through this these corridors happens after the president and not before to me it seems to make more logical sense to just set up the story and when the shit goes down time for snake pliston to come out but instead we just get a whole scene of him walking from a bus through a corridor to a in front of somebody who just tells him to stop and then we fade out and then go into the next scene where i believe at the next scene is when we meet lee van cleef for the first time but but we see that but we see the cold open of the of the plane and the president, right? Doesn't it open with it shows no, the maximum no, security president? No, no. no. Then they Lee Van Cleef shows up, and then they start saying, "Hey, something's going on." Uh, Tom Atkins comes up and says, "Hey, something's going on. Come on!" And then they go in, and they're like, "Here's the plane, and this is what's happening." And then they cut to them to yeah, the plane. It's, yeah, John's right. It's it's what we get is about maybe 90 seconds of Snake Plissken. And, and it's interesting because the only thing, it, we established nothing about his character, except that he looks like a hard ass. And we know that mm-hmm. the cops, he's something important to the cops because they're all standing there staring at him when he walks down the corridor. And we do find one thing that the prison is so scary that you have the option to kill yourself before you go there. But that's mm-hmm. really it. It's about 90 seconds of right, and it, but that's and, it. And, it, and initially that's, that scene would have followed the robbery yeah, of you, the bank, right? Which is originally how the movie was going to start. And right, they shot that right, stuff. Right. The they, shot the, robot, yeah. they shot the bank robbery, so it, but then it didn't really work, right? So he so was, it feels like it should be a response to something. To me, yeah. it's like president goes down in New York. Here's the stakes. What are we going to do about it? Meet right. Snake Plissken. But instead, we just meet him for a minute. And it's very – and again – it's at, it's very atmospheric. It seems to be more interested in okay. Look how badass this guy is. Look at this world. Look at the signs and the fonts and the orange line and the corridor and the suicide uh, discussion and all that stuff. But nothing plot wise happens there at all. Right. Nothing at all. So it's it's always odd to me. I don't yeah. dislike it by any means. But it always just I always go oh yeah. I feel like I thought this happened after. I and totally also, forgot does, about that. Doesn't it feel that. like? Yeah. He's. Are they planning? Is he like in a holding cell, and they're going to send him in to New York, or is he so badass that they're not even going to mix him in with the general population on Manhattan? Yeah, he's the like, only is guy he just on the staying bus. In a, Remember, yeah. he shows up on that huge bus, and he's the only dude on it. Yeah, so it's it almost seems like uh, coincidental that he's there when they need him, mm. but um, 
or he's he's living there. That plan was to keep him there and not mix him in with all the. I don't know, but it's it is odd structurally. It's a coincidence. It you got to be feels you're quite correct. Right. You're correct. It has yeah. to be just a coincidence. But he is established yeah. as a, as sort of a loner and a badass, right? Like the only guy on the bus that should you know he's not marched in. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's sort of like Eastwood in Escape from Alcatraz. He's the only dude who gets off that boat and goes in there, right? Uh, at the beginning, so he's I think it, it's so, kind of yeah. cool. Yeah, he's established immediately as a loner and someone who's apart from the other prisoners because of his, I don't know, badassery that's implied. The other thing that stands out to me is the fact that Lee Van Cleef's character gets out of a limousine. That's always striking to me because nice it doesn't it doesn't really fit the character. Like he seems he seems like a fairly, you know, he's not he's an antagonist to Snake, but he doesn't seem like a uh like a uh, like a high hat and sort of guy like he doesn't see he seems like a low uh, like a working man a true soldier why is he getting out of a limo i always thought that was a funny choice because it says something to you right normally they would that guy would come up on a jeep some soldier would be driving yeah. a jeep and they'd get out of it or something like that but instead he gets out of a limo so is Same it reason. is it so is it just so like we want to give him one thing that we don't like about him like the word he's not really the working class hero that he might be playing he's got a little bit of a of a same reason Hot he's got snooty an side to him or something. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, you know, because he's not, it's, you know, he was a special forces badass in, in Texas Thunder, but now he's a an earring wearing uh limo riding bureaucrat, you know, for all of his yeah. fatigues and his, you know, his 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 uncanny resemblance to a Jim Henson rat. Um now he's he's just a kind of a, a bureaucrat running an entire prison and possibly the the entire US police force, this national police force. Who knows? I mean are we saying that he's he's benefiting from this new world order? Like that he is one of the fat cats that's living off of this new order of criminal versus, you know, law and order, um, prison industrial complex. They don't really get into that, any of that kind of political stuff, but you could guess that this whole thing is uh, somehow their fat cats are benefiting from this situation. So maybe there's just a hint of that. I don't know. Pretty plush office. Riding around in a yeah. limo, you know, and he's he's free. He can kind of do what he wants as as the warden of this prison. I.e., he can put explosive charges into a dude's neck um, without any sign of uh, consent form. Um, so yeah, maybe he, maybe you're right. Maybe he's kind of he's he's uh, drinking cream while the rest of us are, you know, sucking tang. He's the, yep. but he's also that guy from for a few dollars more, right? I, I mean, it's Lee Van Cleef and Clint Eastwood together, you know, and it's like the one's the badass guy and the other one's the 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 mercenary, you know, who's got all the gadgets and, and who's in it in it completely for the money with no other motivations. I'd be in a And yet he's good, he's his boots hit the ground. Uh-huh. He goes into Manhattan, he walks in front of you know he's surrounded by soldiers, but he's there. <clears throat> he's not sitting yeah. back in an office telling other guys to go. So he's kind of an interesting contradiction of a character to me. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think it's I think it's good because I like I said he's not the villain of the movie by any means he's mm-hmm. just an antagonist to Snake but I also kind of like him you know and I kind of I kind of can get why he is doing like, he's got a job to do and Snake's the only guy that can help him with it so he's going to have to manipulate that situation um, and yet a lab technician has the balls <laughs> to say tell him I always think that's such a, and he looks very Cleef looks at him like what and then he goes okay. <laughs> Cronenberg yeah, is our lab technician's name back Cronenberg. We yeah, Cronenberg. Yeah, he's yeah, a gutsy Canadian, that guy, I guess. 
he's a, a mousy little man with an x-ray machine but he has a he, he's got some moral fiber stuck in there yeah for sure yep. yeah it's it's interesting the thing i always like to speculate about is what the deal is at the end right when when he's like hey snake i got a deal for you would make a hell of a team it's like Ugh, what is hauk wanting to do with him now that he's made it back proven that he's the ultimate badass come out got his 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 explosive charges nullified deliver the tape deliver the president and now what and how it's like hey i got a deal for you we make a great team and i always wondered what what the deal would have been you ever thought about surfing with peter fonda uh, we could get that done for you don't sign on that deal don't sign on that deal but would it be like <laughs> you know would it would it be like you're joining the establishment right would it be like when when killian offers offers uh, ben richards the chance to be a stalker Right? Are you gonna you want to join the team that you were so ardently against? And it, you know, obviously, one look at at Pliskin's file should have told Hauk that there's no way on God's green earth he's gonna join up with him. And yet, he still thinks, man, maybe I can tempt this guy. So you're right, Hauk is there's there are probably some more layers to him than are than are apparent from the limousine or the leading the guys in the chopper. Some nuance mm-hmm. in there. It's a Mitch fully Bryan realized. Nuance, it's not. it's a fully realized world. Like yeah. that's what's so cool about it. Like there, it just feels like those those open ended aspects or questions about how the world works, the things that occur to us that are not answered, are just because the world is uh, complicated and intriguing. And I don't know, there's something about it that just, which is another reason why Escape from L.A. was so disappointing because there was there seemed to be absolutely no world building really going on with that. Or, or too much, like too frantic and, and, and broad, right? Like who cares about the Surgeon General of Beverly Hills they, with all the plastic surgery failures around him? It was so broad in L.A. and wink, wink, wink. And mm-hmm. let's have an arch conservative president, you know, who, you know, has mandatory Bible breaks for all American school children and moves the Capitol and gets a life appointment. It was so just the first that the exposition dump at the beginning was was terrible. And then it led into the worst visual effects of the 1990s. And I, I remember looking over it at my buddy in the theater and thinking, we're in deep trouble. Like, this is not good. And, and that was like the first 10 minutes of the movie. And this mm-hmm. movie is, you know, it's subversive and gritty and gross. And there's an oil well in the basement of a library. And there's a cabbie <laughs> listening to American Bandstand. And now I finally get, after I, I just put it together, John Engel's band name, the Dead Borgnines, that he was a bassist in. Mm-hmm. Now I get where it comes from. Um, but this is, yeah, it's it's a world that I, don't, I wouldn't want to be in it. I wouldn't want to be in the walls. But it's a, a world that you would want to read more about. I have a question about wanting to be in those walls and Mm. Ernest Borgnine. So it's established that this situation has been going on for nine years, right? Like 88 is when the crime hits, and this is 97, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Ernest Borgnine says, I've been driving a cab in this town for 30 years. Did he just stay? Did did he just go, I think I'll stay in this prison. I'm just going to drive the cab around. I read in the the uh, the tie-in novel that Cabby is a he's a pedophile, and so he. Oh he's, no! Yeah. They, well, uh, thanks I, for I, ruining I my fun I, question. Well, the Molotovs <laughs> and the and the and the American Bandstander fun, but yes, he's he's a predator who is is locked in there. Oh as well. no! I'm sorry, he loved Cabby. to he loved to watch American Bandstand for the young girls on it. He right? did, didn't he? Oh, right? God. He loved it. Guys, loved it. Yeah. So the American Bandstand reference, by the way. Uh, I just wonder is that be, is that a little tip of the hat to his producer of uh, Elvis, the one and only Dick Clark? 
That's interesting because I know that Remy, the, Captain Remy, um, is named after the president of Avco Embassy. Who and this was the second of his two pictures for Avco Embassy. So Captain Remy um, is named after Robert Remy, the president of Avco. And you know he obviously with names like Cronenberg and and Doctor Fibes in the Fog, um, he's he's certainly not a and you know I mean Nick Castle in the Fog. He's not above using you know or or he's not above being lazy and just plugging in names That's, that he knows in in screenplays. He said specifically that his least favorite thing about writing is coming up with names, so he just doesn't do it. He just, like, grabs them from other places. So it's boring to come up with names, so he just grabs them and throws them. Street names, town names, all of it. It's all a reference. Everything's a reference to something right. uh, in his or Deborah Hill's life or whatever. Yeah, Haddonfield, Illinois. You grew up in Haddonfield, New Jersey. All, maybe, all they, maybe they got a cheap deal on clearing the rights to American Bandstand. Maybe Dick Clark did him a solid and gave him the rights to it without that's, charging him money for it. That could be. It could you know, be. That's possible. I, I didn't. I, that's right. I forgot that Dick Clark was involved with Elvis. Dick Clark hired him. Really? He, he hired John Carpenter, as, as the way I understand it. Yeah. Shit. And that. I would say, just as that as a segue quickly, I just watched Elvis and. It's an extraordinary movie, and I'm surprised it wasn't part of the conversation, the cultural conversation when uh, Baz Luhrmann's Elvis came out. Just because, like I didn't see anybody say there are, there's been, you know, Kurt Russell. There was another Elvis it, before. It made a couple lists of like the I, I saw that Vulture slash New York Magazine released a list of the greatest Elvises in movies. Yeah, and you know, there's you know David Keith showing up and blah blah blah. But uh, Russell was I think number one or two. Well, he is absolutely mesmerizing in the movie. You can't take your eyes off of him. But what's really amazing about it, which fits with this conversation about John Carpenter at his most powerful, you know, at, when he really was at the height of his powers, is as a director having to make this TV movie, a three-hour TV movie with obviously one of those insane breakneck schedules that they used to force directors to do with network TV movies – Carpenter's direction is so precise. He shoots almost no coverage unless he knows he's going to go in for the close-up as the button to a scene. Everything is constructed in these beautiful singles, oneers, and people moving towards camera, and the, and and just really clearly thought out every single shot. And it's it's he's not leaning on oh we got two cameras or whatever or I'm just going to cover the shit out of this master close-up close-up. He doesn't do any of that stuff. And he just he comes in, he nails it, and he clearly moves on to the next scene. So as a as an example of great direction, not just good direction, but as yeah. great direction, you know, Elvis is is right there in that in that period when Carpenter was excited and hungry and young and had lots of energy because it, it was right after Halloween that he that he made Elvis. Well, has so. any has anybody in the group seen someone's watching me? I saw it once a long time ago, and um, I have almost no memory of it. Mm -hmm. We might need to might need to trot that out on on John Engel's movie night. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I do want to point out for the listeners out there, just to point out, you know, if you're new to the Quadfecta, despite the fact that we're talking about a couple of TV movies here, TV movies do not qualify. For the in the rules for the quadfecta, so please, like, in case you're confused that we're talking about one of the uh, the second movie in our quadfecta, we are not. 
We're simply talking about That's a movie right. that was aired Dan on television. Curtis fans out there, please don't write in. <laughs> the Dan so. Curtis fans? <laughs> please don't write Are in. You, I thought you were the president of that cl- fan club, too. I, I, no, I guess not. I, the fan clubs of which I'm president include David Huddleston, okay, Darren McGavin, Monty Markham, Hal Needham. And then mm-hmm. I, I, I gave up Christopher Reeve and I gave up Kirstie Alley. I... There were For obvious some, reasons. There were some yeah. misconduct issues, and the, and the vice presidents had to take over in those organizations. But yeah, I, mm-hmm. I, 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 you know. And remember, all of you guys out there who want to join, the the sooner you join the fan clubs, the lower your membership number will be. So really, if I, you know, and there's some great incentives out there. I've got some great Dev, David Huddleston glossies. Some I've got um, I've, I've got some Capricorn One stuff from him. I've got some some uh, Lebowski stuff. So really, the whole gamut of David Huddleston's in there. No, uh, no Blazing Saddle stuff. That's that's a gone. That's I, that went out. Yeah. At a, at, at Sorry, folks. Stuff, so. But please, so, yes, sorry, let's but... uh, let's let's say that this is I'm on a segue here. The second of his two movies that he did for Avco Embassy. Mitch Bryan, would you please open that envelope in front of you and tell me the first movie he did for Avco Embassy and the second of our quadfecta films? I believe that that would have been The Fog. It is night. It is cold. coming for all those who can hear my voice look into the darkness across the water look for the fog John Carpenter's the fog what in the living hell is out there John Carpenter's the fog Coming soon from Avco Embassy Pictures. This one, I'm fuzzy on in terms of greatness versus goodness. So, John, like you're Engel, foggy. You might case. be a little foggy. That's enough. I'm not going to. Oh wow, you. Button for you. Interesting that you would ask me to make the case because I'm with you. I this is the one that I stumble on. So I thought actually I might be the uh, outlier on this one. I I like the fog. I don't know if I love The Fog like I do the other movies we're going to talk about today. So I can say that I love I The Fog. I can say, but I can also say that I love Blue Thunder, and I can also say that it's not right. a great movie. You have said that. You have I said that. I can say that times. I love Rollerball, but I can also say it's not a great movie. Uh, Mitch yeah, Bryan, exactly. can you make the case for The Fog at our number two slot? Uh, yes, I can. In that it continues to be this, I mean, his style, his style is, maybe his style is even better than Halloween in terms of what he's doing with composition and movement and those amazing Panavision lenses and the lens flares and what Dean Cundy is doing, like, and maybe performance is is better. He's getting better performances out of the actors than maybe he was getting in Halloween. Maybe he's got a little bit more time. But, you know, here's the thing. The thing that really makes it a truly great film is the fact that Tom Atkins actually has a shot at Jamie Lee Curtis. You know, that's, not just a shot, but it works, man. And anybody, any no. red-blooded American man like who who sees themselves as, as another Tom Atkins will come watch that movie and think, wow, I'd, I'd actually... I actually might his, have a shot at Jamie his, Lee. 
him and his brother from from the Howling, <laughs> who the, they're like the, the two guys. What I can't think of the actor's name from the Howling. From the Howling. D, 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 no, D Wallace is. Oh, uh, I'm oh, just, oh Christopher Stone. Not really Stone? his brother. Christopher Stone. There's the, they both have this sort of type of early, late seventies early eighties guy that mm-hmm. was yeah. being sold to us as probably has a gallon of Old Spice in the in the bathroom. You know, wears big cable knit sweaters and has a mustache and a. I I, I would say they that were sold Chris, to us as very attractive men, and I, I have never. I would say it. that Christopher Stone right. is a more classically handsome yes. guy who yeah. I actually believe exactly. might could have a shot at D. Wallace or Belinda Belasky or even even Jamie Lee Curtis. I don't think Tom Atkins. Could possibly have a no. shot at Jamie Lee Curtis, and that's why I love the movie so no. much. It makes me see. It that's makes one me of the things so I happy. don't like about the movie. I I don't buy it for a second, especially <laughs> even the way that it. I don't even buy the it way either, that it plays it. out. When I picture the way Tom it plays Atkins, out is so real like life proposing Jamie Lee Curtis. I picture him getting shot through the eggnog in Lethal Weapon. <laughs> that's what I think would happen if he were to actually that's... go to her at a party. <laughs> hey, you remember that scene we did in the fog? Gosh, you. Yours has sure been treating you good. How you been? Bam, bam, bam. Right through the eggnog. He's Mr. Right Joshua there. putting one right through the eggnog. Right Gary Buse that, just that's... giving a little salute to Jamie Lee Curtis as his helicopter takes him away. Yeah. Right Again, there. that's my and that's my introduction to Tom Atkins. Again, I'm behind the I'm behind the the curve mm. on the carpenter. So I know Tom Atkins as Michael Hunsecker first, not mm. any of his like mini John Carpenter roles. But um, yeah, I don't. But so here, this you know, I agree, Mitch, that on everything you said visually about the visual, um, the like the aesthetics of the film are fantastic, just right up there with anything that he's done, that Carpenter's done, and Cundy's done. And I, I agree that the performances are fine, I don't think that the character dynamics work, and I don't necessarily, I don't think that they handled intercutting between all of the different groups of characters very well either i always feel like it moves around kind of clumsily between the different settings that we're in with the different groups of characters before we actually bring them all together towards the end i just always feel like i don't know that's where i that's where it loses me it almost feels like the um like the uh the economy of storytelling that he had in halloween say or even in escape from new york there's a little bit he like maybe went a little overcomplicated just in how not that it's a super complicated film but in trying to cut between all these different people mm. and bring it all together in the end and it doesn't feel very um very elegant can i can i quote tommy lee wallace oh i wish you tommy lee wallace yeah let me quote tommy lee wallace in this forward to john carpenter prince of darkness which is a pretty extraordinary book by one gilles boulanger that's right. Oh, yeah. So Tommy Lee writes the introduction to it in the forward. And he's like, uh, and talking about, um, you know, he's like uh, talking about the success of Halloween. We were lucky with Halloween, but then you make your own luck. And the marriage of that script with John's direction was near perfection. It was an ace crew. The footage cut together like butter. What appeared on screen was in the end not drastically different than the first cut. So why not take the same director, the same writing team, the same crew? Hey, let's even take some of the same actors. Let's take three times as much money and let's do a ghost story. The fog sounded like an instant success. And yet, first day in the editing room, first splice, an ordinary cut from a wide shot to a close-up, dialogue, nothing fancy, nothing unusual. And wouldn't you know it, the cut bumped. Something about it just didn't quite work. So you pull it apart 
choose a different cut point, try again. The cut bumped again. It was as if the ghosts of Antonio Bay had gotten into the film cans, the (laughs) moviolas, the projector, our heads. Nothing clicked. Nothing fell together. Nothing came easily. It was the anti-Halloween final payback for our smooth ride with Jamie Lee and The Shape. And he goes on to just talk about how difficult it was to make the movie work. And so I don't know where the... um, where the script was in terms of the moving back and forth between the groups of characters. Yeah. But it's quite possible that the, in recutting and redesigning the movie, they found different ways to try to propel, propel the narrative forward. And it's, uh. and it's the hand of the storyteller moving that sucker ahead. It's not mm-hmm. what feels to be the organic situations of the characters and the interactions. Didn't ha- I mean, yeah. honestly, Thelma Schoonmaker has mentioned having, quote, ghost lepers in her head when she can't quite... <laughs> get a movie cut quite right i think so that's not that's not unheard of but yeah are you serious you're no. joking okay I, sorry you, you sold me on it that was good no, that was no, really the crew, the really good i know ghost leopards i was like what movie was that does that no, ghost leopards lepers like a leper colony yeah i know um, like this the father damien movie that 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 scorsese never made right that's right that's right so yeah. i can say that i think the fog is a great ghost story like a really, really good ghost story. The supernatural elements are really good. Um, I get why he went back and and scared it up based on the slasher culture that was prevalent in movies at the time. And what was drawing horror fans was was bloody nightmares and and knives and and just sheer terror, as opposed to what Carpenter was great at, which is suspense. He's really, really, really good at suspense. And mm-hmm. um, the fog has some great, great elements of of that. Um, uh, there are parts of it that I, I would agree with John that it maybe feels like Carpenter was juggling a far more sprawling cast than he was used to with, with um, you know, the, you don't get a lot more linear than Halloween. You have basically one babysitter you cut to and then your heroine and back, and that's kind of it. Um, but I love the location stuff. I love all of the Northern California stuff. Carpenter, I guess, fell in love with it, and that's that was because of all the locations in this that he bought his house up north and i would certainly would would get it um i think her kid is annoying as hell oh yeah i wish that that mrs coberts had dropped the ball and let andy get (laughs) gutted with with a gaff um i don't even want to know what a stomach pounder is which is what he wants for breakfast (laughs) yeah uh a coke (laughs) the studio shot campfire ghost story that they went back and redid which on houseman is sensational it's so good yeah it's and it absolutely adds immeasurably to the movie um i don't know that the poe quote brings much to it but but that going back and shooting that was a minor stroke of genius when we saw it never watched the outtakes where he's swearing in front of all those children multiple (laughs) times those are those are a lot of fun he he wasn't getting his line he wasn't doing great to a lot of the shooting of that but he would just like swear (laughs) every time he messed up a line be like shit shit (laughs) just like john house been saying shit in front of children is pretty cool does that footage exist yeah i've seen it it's on it's on that uh i have that um i was gonna mention i have that um scream factory 4k i just got that it just looked absolutely beautiful I just got that, yeah. and I got it because of the extras, and it is absolutely. There's yeah. the, the geeky guy who goes to all the locations, um, which is yeah. is really fun. But yeah, that's an amazing, amazing Scream Factory. God bless them for you know the money yep. they throw into these transfers because they're they're fantastic. 
but I have I've not got the four, the that 4K of that and blue uh, outtakes yet. Yeah, yes, that's correct. <laughs> um, I want Escape from New York. Also, I have that the Shout Factory 4K of that too. Also looked amazing. Like when he gets off the bus, mm. in like the weirdest shots that stand out to you when you see these super high res, and it's like this warm green light inside the bus, and you see him perfectly. You can see him perfectly as he starts to step down the steps. And it's like, man, I love I love these. Like when you can really see it, really nice warm looking tones of color and everything. I don't know. Unless Big fan of 4K. It's little dip so he can get off of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. The the 4K stuff, stuff on on, a, on an amazing TV is it's a. I'm not going to say a completely new movie, but it's definitely something that uh, a way to watch them that that is amazing and and not like I mean Mitch will tell you we've been to screenings of of Aldi's on the big screen at you know either yep. at the Draft House or when Mitch was teaching at uh, at Tivoli and um, it's this the 4K stuff is I, I get the whole 35 I get it as Mitch will tell you the light yep. the light hits your eyes in a different way with 35 but 4K stuff is incredible. Absolutely. Incredible. And we actually, the three of us went and saw The Fog together at, at the Alamo. I remember. I don't remember when that was. Probably like 2018 or 17. That was a like print that. too, wasn't it? I think uh-huh. it was a print. I, I uh-huh. think it was, yeah. 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 yeah well, and that's the thing. Is you do print. see things in these 4K transfers that you never see in the movie theater, for better mm-hmm. or for worse. Like, it's a different yeah. experience, right? Mm-hmm. It, it's uh, it's a whole other, whole other thing. And as a person who watches a lot of the same movies over and over again, it's nice to get a different experience out of them. Exactly. Totally. So, yeah, like, it's anything that like watching Raiders the 4K, the Raiders of the Lost Ark 4K was just like I. It was like I had never seen the movie before. It was beautiful. Um, I won't speak to the other transfers of the other Indiana Jones movies, but that one in particular was like I've seen this movie a thousand times from the worst, like literally faulty VHS tape that I owned of it to this is just beautiful. So anyway, we're we're getting off the rails here. We're going a little too video chat. All right, so um, we are st- we are stuck between we've got the fog and we've got Escape from New York. Are we going forward or backward next? Well, when you get lost between the fog and New York City, I'm oh, sorry. I, I'm sorry. <laughs> I was just about to go into uh, Arthur's theme there. Sorry about that. What what do we do? Let's go What's back. What's the best one that we can more. do here? Let's go back one more. Oh, really? So what do you think? Go back to yeah, sure. Go back to I Halloween. I think there's nothing like vaudeville, and if you're not going to be able to watch vaudeville, you should be able to watch Halloween, which is kind of the one that started it all. Halloween night, a small American town, fifteen years ago. <laughs> trying to reach him and then another seven trying to keep him locked up because I realized that what was living behind that boy's eyes was purely and simply evil. <laughs> I think he'll come back. Exploring uncharted territory. And totally charted. Just Sure, sure. The only reason she babysits is to have Halloween. You can look at Dark Star. You can look at Assault on Precinct 13. 
but there is no seismic supernova galaxy obliterating precedent shattering movie in anybody's resume quite like Halloween. Yeah, but we didn't, we didn't, that's not to say we're not going to talk about Assault on Precinct 13. We might, right? It might, might. I guess it not. I think one. we kind of spoiled not. it. I think everybody, I don't think there's I think any by now everybody knows this. the one. <laughs> yeah. So I, I want to say this about Halloween, the first time I saw it. I had heard about it. One of my friends had come back from a trip to Denver and had seen it in Denver and it hadn't got to our little burg where I lived yet. And he was raving about it. And he and I and it, so I was and I didn't know whether I thought about his taste in movies, but he was he was definitely on Team Halloween. And um, so we went to see it when it finally showed up um, in our little town. And I remember thinking that there were parts of it that felt kind of cheeseball. Right. And that and yet when it was all said and done. I walked out to my car and I checked the back seat. I was I was just creeped out enough that I, you know, it, it was weird because the movie was, for me, it, the movie was actually scarier walking out of the theater. Like it all kind of hit me after the fact than the experience of watching the movie. And I mean, how did you feel about closets after that? I mean, that to me, that's the, the well, scariest I, stuff. I know. The, like, right. There's no back. There's no places. real backseat stuff to look. At. I guess there kind of is. But no, I but it was just yeah. like I was so que- creeped out by the whole thing after the fact. And it 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 wasn't like with Carrie where you had that crazy explosion at the end um, of the hand coming out and everybody's kind of laughing. Something about this movie, even though everybody kind of. When they looked down and he was and Michael wasn't on the wasn't the corpse wasn't there anymore, right? Uh, mm-hmm. And the audience kind of makes this kind of sound, you know, like for some of them they're like, "Oh, that's cheese ball," and for others it was it was scary, truly scary. Um, and I think I was kind of somewhere in between. And yet, the movie had a real impact afterwards, and I w- and I went back. Okay. And I saw it again pretty pretty soon after the first time. Did and you, then obviously back, a few go times back, to go back with a buddy who hadn't seen it and watch them. No, I don't, I don't remember. That's a good, I don't remember, but I, I just feel like I saw it a second time in its initial release, but I don't I don't remember the experience. Is that great pleasure of being the one in the know when you and a friend are at a horror movie and you can just kind of focus on their reactions. To yeah. It was coming up. I love doing that. Yeah. <laughs> you're like, you're like sitting there like laughing inside, like, <laughs> Right, like, this, thing. this is going to get him. And then it does, and it's great. And it's great. Yeah. And their friend's like, why didn't you tell me? Yeah, yeah. Halloween, I, 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 I've seen a couple times on the big screen, but for me it was, uh, it. I <laughs> I saw it after I saw Halloween 2. And I saw Halloween oh. 2 <laughs> at a friend's house, uh, fourth grade, went over there, and um, it was just me and my buddy. And his mom was out at some junior league function or whatever and we watched halloween 2 scary really scary and i'm like all right time for bed and he's like yeah i'm probably gonna sleep in my mom's room um and anyway i'll see you in the morning i'm lying on his floor in a sleeping bag staring at the ceiling terrified absolutely <laughs> terrified and his mom comes home at like 2 a.m and i creep out i'm like mrs McWhorter, would you like to stay up and talk for a while and then <laughs> The next day, we rented Halloween, 
And that was my introduction. And I was shocked oh. because Halloween 2 is obviously so much bloodier, so much more explicit, so much more graphic. And Halloween, to me, is... as I, I was... I was the second one terrified me. The first had me in this this mode of of uh, like Mitch of of constant dread, and 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 being bu- having my hands bunched up on the armrests of the chair, and yes, looking around when I walked out of his house to walk home, looking around the street and 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 things like that, and and being and and having my mom check out the upstairs when I went up before I went up to my bedroom. That was what Halloween did. That was what having him vanish at the end does. And uh, that tells you it's so effective and how, how good Carpenter is in that movie that his bad guy is so scary and he's so good at using him that when the bad guy doesn't die at the end, you're freaked out afterward. That's, I mean, mm-hmm. genuinely freaked out. Not, not, not a wreck, but more than you would be watching Halloween too, certainly. But yeah. It's... Do you remember on VHS when they had the pan and scan, <clears throat> you know, John Carpenter's amazing wide, widescreen cinematography. And so that gets all smashed up on VHS. And it, there's a, I, the scene at the um, phone booth where I think it's that there's a train or something. And, and the reveal right. is that there's a dead body. Right. But I remember in the VHS version, you didn't get the punchline. Because oh, it just pans over to the field. It, it, like it pans over, but you don't. It's the body is on the side of the frame where the the camera's not catching it, or the you know the pan the pan and scan thing isn't catching it. And I just remember watching that, having this kind of moment of oh wow, yeah, this is way worse. Th- I, I mean, I don't even know whether I was conscious of aspect ratio and all that stuff as uh, as a kid, but I just remember when I saw it on VHS not long after, you know, whenever it was released, a year later or whatever, it was like, this isn't this isn't as good. It's, the big screen is better. Yeah. I can't, I'm missing stuff. I'm not seeing stuff that was in this movie. Same way that Galaga in the arcade <laughs> is better than Atari at home. Yeah, I guess that's true. Yeah. Well, the trick with Galaga, true. obviously, was to get one of your ships captured and then free it so you could use two ships. So, John, yeah, everybody knows that, that Jason. That's <laughs> yeah. Okay. I I knew I knew already. Did, was what were you? Did you find the scene creepy with the the people at the asylum wandering around? Oh God, yes. Yeah, and I thought that was pretty good. They only show up in lightning flashes, <clears throat> right? And, and headlights, and 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 they're these blobs of white who look exactly like ghosts in in that mm-hmm. pitch black night. And and so yeah, it, once they start showing up with lightning flashes you're as alarmed as as the nurse uh, driving the car and dr loomis is all calm he's like yeah give me up to that phone and all sorts of stuff and and you know why don't we lift him off with the hinges and it's like yeah i don't think that's going to work in this case but um yeah it's it's a very creepy scene and then the horror of him scaling the back of the car like a wild animal yeah. is is great lit by the by the tail lights it's fantastic it's so good yeah so good. And the Tell movie's me. a masterclass in suspense and not necessarily a masterclass in horror. That's the thing. It's there is it is almost entirely bereft of blood. Yeah. Yeah. You know, gruesome imagery? Yeah. Eh, not gruesome, but certainly symbolically horrifying, laid out in front of a tombstone or with a jack-o'-lantern at the head or whatever or him dressed as a ghost. But there's <laughs> the movie is is almost I mean, even when Annie gets her throat cut in the car, it's basically bloodless. Yeah. And Michael dressed as remembers. a ghost. Yeah. My favorite part of the whole movie 
It's my favorite scene of the whole movie. Everything about her not understanding. I don't know what it is. It's, it's like so silly. It's so silly. And, the cut and yet it's crazy and creepy. Closer and closer with each cut. And you notice yep. that the glasses are askew and not really matched up with the eye holes and little things like that. Right. The way he just, it gets closer and closer with each cut. It's, it's but, great. If we were actually trying to get into the mind of Michael Myers, why would he <laughs> choose to do doing? this? It's so fun because it's like he's kind of he's kind of a silly guy, apparently, but he'll right. just I kill mean, you. The but, he'll kill you and then stare at you. And I, that was, you know, the, remember when he stares at the guy that he's pinned to the wall? He just stands yeah. there and kind of looks at him. And that was a nice moment, too. That was terrifying. What kind, What's all in his Bob, head? Like All Bob wanted was a beer and his dying words, Linda, you <laughs> asshole. And that's it for Bob. That's it for Bob. Oh, Bob. Yeah, well, Bob yeah, is... and that was, you know, one of the really gruesome killings. And then, so we get this moment. It's like this terrible, gruesome killing, and he stares at him. And then we get the silly scene for a second. Mm-hmm. And then we're back to the horror. And by the time we get Laurie in there, I mean, to me, not there's not many better horror movie shots than her by the closet and his face appearing in the shadow. Yeah, and boy, yeah. when you got when you have a nice high resolution video version of that, it looks it looks even better. That's when not comes, the setup. Right? Just kind That's of appears the... for a moment. Right? Yeah. Right. I'm talking about when his right. face just appears and it holds for just you know it. They don't go for the big shock jump scare there. Mm, it holds for in. just a beat. So you're like ah for a second before the shit goes down. It's That's beautiful. That's one of the it's two master done. master class shots. The other being when she's leaning in the doorway and he sits up behind her and his head rotates like a tank turret right at her. And That's that fantastic. and that was um probably second to Carrie's hand coming out of the grave for the biggest shriek in a movie theater that I've ever experienced. Really? No, yeah. did you did you guys think that she had killed him or was it just oh my god he's he's compl- like a machine? I I was in in that moment. I was there. I, I believed she'd killed him. Like that's what we're supposed to believe, right? That she did him in. She sticks him with the knife in yeah. the chest. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The way he sits up and then his head turns is like, yes. oh my god, it's fantastic. <laughs> and it's such a small thing. It's I know. A small, small. I mean, it's just Carpenter saying, you know what? Why don't you turn your head like an owl or a tank a little bit and then lock in on her, and that's it. And then, yeah, as as John says, you have the great way that his his face appears, sort of like a moon from behind a cloud, um, in the darkness, and the 4K makes that even more amazing. Yeah, yeah. but that movie's and a masterclass. It doesn't have all a, the cl- a wrong beat. I don't even know if technically that's a closet that he's in when we see his face, but then we get she opens the closet and Bob's in there, right? And then she, then obviously there's this the full on assault in the closet Mm -hmm. it's just crazy like these enclosed spaces he just uses so well and it's not you know i guess it's kind of like the closet scene where he's like actually in there and she's on the floor is like a set piece sort of you know but it's just like not it's like what how much did they spend on this movie three hundred thousand dollars right three three twenty five or something Yeah. yeah yeah so it's like yeah make it he makes great use of of the spaces in these houses which are i believe didn't he shoot in the real houses yeah i know that they right yeah, almost all in Pasadena, and I think yeah. a little bit somewhere else. But um, um, but yeah, they even had they even made sure to have two houses that faced each other, so that we could have that. You know, they wouldn't have to manipulate that. Um, mm-hmm. the horror that's happening across the street in the um, un, un you know, beknownst to the people in the in the house across, on the other side of the street. Oh, the Doyle. So and the it's Wallace good house. stuff. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I love yeah. I love him uh, when when Tommy looks out and sees him silhouetted against the house just staring at it 
and and does yeah. this whole you know boogeyman boogeyman thing. But the the I, I love the cry wolf aspect of it too. That he knows the kid knows, and the adults aren't listening to him. But the kid the kid knows that something is completely wrong, and there's a dead body being carried, and all this other stuff. And you know, by the time the adult, the responsible person checks, the door is closed and the porch lights off. You know, it's 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 so good at evoking well, the, all that childhood fear and futility too. And we haven't really talked about all the stuff that happens in the first 20 minutes of the movie, which is broad daylight Haddonfield, right? And lots of Lori walking to the score. And again, we're back to the atmospheric carpenter, right? It's like, I just want you all to live in this town with her. I want you to be here with her and experience it. And it, and it always takes me, every time I watch this movie, I also think of Fire Walk With Me, David Lynch's Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me. I almost feel like Lynch kind of... I. Uh, uh, Laura Palmer's dressed in a very similar way mm. and she's walking to school on that day on the fateful day you know and all that stuff and I always think oh I think Lynch really I bet you if we if you talk to Lynch he really digs Halloween and probably more so the first 30 minutes than the rest of it yeah. you know but um, I just love how immersive it is but then you also get Michael Myers in broad daylight which is again another thing that I, I know it's iconic of course I'm not really forgetting but every time I watch the movie it's it's still striking to me that we see him in broad daylight and we see him just like in an over the shoulder shot, just watching and him driving a car around town. I was just going to say the, the fact so that crazy. the fact that he, I don't think you see him at the wheel, but you know, he's driving, you, the, do. you know, he's you driving the car. It, yeah. 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 And what, did, what was he thinking when he stops? I always, again, we're back to the same guy that put on the, the sheet and the glasses. It's like she, she kind of taunts him. And then he stops. What was he going to do? Was it? Did he really get mad at a first sight? And then go and then think better of it. It's such a strange beat, <laughs> but it all kind of. It's all. It's not. It doesn't make sense. Right. But it, that makes it all the more unsettling. Where do you get know? the mask? How do How do you get the mask? Where do you buy the mask from? Where do you get? Decide to get a Captain from the Kirk, Star Trek uh, Captain yeah. Kirk mask and paint it. So he's got to sit around painting it before he goes walking around town in the car. So yeah, it's like there's dude, all those dude. This is gonna freak him out, gonna man. Kill him. This is gonna be great. I mean, it's all that. It's the it's the uncanny. You know, it's the stuff yeah, that like it's great. You can't quite figure it out, but you kind of have to believe it because you're staring at it, and it's thank God bless Linda. We know how dumb yeah. she is, but when she's like, uh, "Do you really think that Devon Graham drives a station wagon with the Illinois state seal on the side?" For Christ's <laughs> sakes, Linda. I mean, really. I get that she doesn't remember any of her textbooks with obvious good reason, but no one at your high school is driving an official Illinois state car. God. <laughs> That's why she falls for the sheet gimmick, obviously. Yeah. I The thing that about the first 20 minutes that I love is what you said. It's a little bit like Jaws. All you get are hints or from far away, which is great, Like especially when mm-hmm. he's in the sheets, uh, the laundry, um, when she looks out the window. That's a great shot to me because the sheets are going crazy in the wind and flapping all around him. And it's very ethereal and ghostly. And then she looks again or we cut back to him and he's gone. I thought that was great. That's super. And I remember pausing it at VHS, trying to look at his face and trying to see the mask really carefully. But yeah, you got to go. Got to go 4K and big TV to have a really good look at it. (laughs) And why was there no APB ad on the car, by the way? A stolen state car. Yeah, I mean, I get that Haddonfield is a small sheriff's department, and his daughter's usually high, so sheriff, the sheriff's probably having to focus at home a lot. But uh, you know, uh, seriously, we don't notice some state I, car. 
cruising around? I'm thinking one more pass on the script, and he would have been driving that truck. Like, he kills a guy who has a truck and takes his clothes, but then continues to drive the same car. I think he might go through the script one more time and go, you know, he should probably take the truck, and and Loomis should probably find the car Mm. instead of just go, hmm, clothes, hmm, and then walk away not knowing there's a body right in the corner. Uh, It just, it does, like, I think that it would have made a little more sense, you're right, because it is a little weird that he's able to just drive around and nobody, I mean, hell, Loomis is in town. Um, He could have very easily seen the car just driving down the road, and the movie would be over. Or it had been a different movie, a car chase movie or something. I don't know what it would have been. Uh, I, I also, was in hot pursuit. Yeah, that would have been great. I, I just, I really wanted to say, too, that, um, hey, Lonnie, get your ass off that porch, yeah. is got a monstrous laugh in the movie theater. Yeah, but probably because the movie doesn't have a lot of laughs, right? Uh-uh. Well... Uh, yeah, uh, I mean, Andy, it Andy gets stuck in a window. Annie pours, you know, the kids are a little goofy. Yeah. But in terms of all out humor, that's pretty much. I mean, but it's the guy who you wouldn't expect to say right, something like right, that. And right. it's just such a it's it's a superb moment. It's so funny. Nice to get Lonnie get his comeuppance for the jack-o'-lantern bullshit, too. That's right. Yes, nice to have that's right. I'm sure Rob Zombie so, um, had a lot to analyze there, but thankfully yeah. we're going to we're going to let that slide. <laughs> So there is the scene um, too, like so it's Halloween night, and they're and Lori's just babysitting some kids, and they're watching a movie, right? They watch a movie that night. What movie do they watch? Well, shit! If if, if you're putting a gun to my head, I'm gonna have to say they're watching the thing, buddy. They're watching, they're, they're watching the movie that John Engel had never seen until today. John Engel, I, I watched it for the first on. time today. <laughs> I mean, as president of I the Kenneth Toby even... Fan Club of Kansas City. I find that both really offensive, frankly. I know, I'm offended too. Trust me, I, I, I offended that myself. Amazing. It's pretty good. Right. That's all right. You I don't know if I'd say amazing. Got to go to. That's fine. I was telling Mitch that I think I might have needed a, a better circumstance to watch it in than just, I better watch this movie, and it's on TCM app, so I'll watch it today. Instead, maybe if I'd have seen it in the theater, I'd have been more, you know, but it's, it's good. Yeah, very good. And it's The Thing from Another World, but uh, the movie that we're going to talk about now is just called The Thing. Twelve men have just discovered something. For 100,000 years, it was buried in the snow and ice. Now it has found a place to live, inside, where no one can see it, or hear it, or feel it. I know I'm human. Some of you are still human. This thing doesn't want to show itself. It wants to hide inside an imitation. It'll fight if it has to, but it's vulnerable out in the open. If it takes us over, then it has no more enemies. Nobody left to kill it. And it's one. You guys gotta listen to Gary. He can beat one of those things. Bill Lancaster's the thing. Bill Lancaster's the thing. So. Bill Lancaster, notable for two things, being Burt Lancaster's son, sure, and for also have write, having written the Bad News Bears, a 1,000 batting average, if you ask me. Wow. I think if we were doing Bill Lancaster quad effect, duo effect, I don't know what you call it, but those are two truly 
The Thing and uh, Bad News Bears, two truly great films, if you ask me. And I only wish we could have seen his fire starter with uh, with Carpenter as well. So um, sadly, we didn't because The Thing bombed. So that's something. That's amazing. Bill Lancaster. Yeah, my dad's Burt Lancaster and my father-in-law's Ernie Kovacs. That's so wild. Hollywood is so weird, man. But yeah, the the thing bombs, and we have a probably a pretty good idea why, right? In 1982, summer of 1982, there was another alien. A friendly alien. Another alien came to visit, and it was much friendlier and child friendly, and sold a lot of plush dolls and. Reese's Pieces and got a lot of asses in the seats, and that was E.T., which was the movie I saw that summer, uh, and none of the other ones. Like, Of course, I was quite little at the time. but um, Oh, I wasn't quite um, little, and I didn't like E.T., and I loved the thing. And so I, I was particularly, e. yeah, I, I've, I've warmed up to E.T. over the years, but when it first came out, I thought it was just like you sentimental garbage. I liked, I liked Poltergeist much better. But still, even thought even thought Poltergeist was a little schmaltzy. I loved the thing. I was young. I was a young man. Uh, yeah, he family, was trying to be edgy. He's trying to be cool. You know, I'm too cool for ET. Yeah, well, I, I was not too cool for the thing, man. The thing was like, man. <laughs> no. Unfortunately, the thing was too cool for America. Sadly. It's exactly it's right. Because it was too you, cool you for it, the box buddy, office. You were, you were one of, of of several hundred people who saw it in the theater that summer. It, it just, I just so can't. Sad to it's think so that. sad. It's so sad that that. I mean, that is just one of those. That's one of those movies that comes out and you love it, and you can't figure out why everybody else is not mm-hmm. going to see this right, movie right. that you loved. Right. Question. Question. Do you, do you guys think that there have been more tickets sold to Alamo Drafthouse revival screenings of the thing than there were the summer it came out? God, probably. 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 With all, yeah, with I think so. It's an extremely are. popular movie to show in retro and in, in any movie house. Show it any Carpenter. I mean, Carpenter just kills nowadays. Everybody go see the thing every year. I know people that it's their absolute favorite movie, and they will mm-hmm. see it every single time that it comes out in a the theater. And I honestly will too. I mean, I've seen it. I know I saw it before this, but I the first time I ever saw it on the big screen, Mitch, was at the Tivoli, and I can't remember if it was a class or not. It probably but was. But we all watched it. was me, me and you and Mike, and Jason, you might have even been there. I don't yeah. remember. I but, did, but It had been like yeah. before I really knew you, but um, I remember us watching it, and it was kind of like the first time, sort of like scales falling off my eyes kind of viewing, even though I'd seen it before. It was like totally different. And then we all went to McCoy's and had beers, and I was talking to you and Mike about the movie, and it was like... Holy shit! Yeah, this movie is really amazing. I never had, I never realized how great it was until I saw it on, on, with you guys on the big screen. And yeah, it's one that I will go back and see um, anytime you show it. Would we say that it's Carpenter's best film? I would, yeah, yeah, I, I would too. I think so yeah. too. Wow, unanimity or anonymity, whichever. Yeah. But I, yeah, don't you think most people would? I mean, I know there's going to be people that are fans of. Specific, like some people are fans of movies, like specific movies. I'm a Halloween fan, or I'm an Escape from New York fan. But people that are just talking it more objectively about a, pers- a filmmaker's body of work, most people would say it's the thing, right? Certainly, it's like his most like fully his most formed movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I admit that I'm a Halloweeniac, but uh, you know that that's because that movie is more of a 
of a searing imprint in my in my movie brain than than the thing which is something I look at more objectively and and view um, from from a distance. Whereas Halloween is it's a much more visceral it's emotional response. Whereas the thing I can be more clinical with, despite the emotion mm-hmm. that it does dredge up. But the emotion with the thing is more like this movie is fucking great. Like, well, like constantly, I'm thinking that all constantly. the performances are spot on. There's not a bad performance yeah. in the movie, whereas. I think you can probably find, even if it's just the odd secondary character with two lines or whatever, there's there's probably a there's definitely some bad performances in Halloween. There's like a there's a, a shit on Charles there's a C. Loomis. couple of moments in the fog where the performances are definitely not up to snuff, <laughs> including John Carpenter. Nancy Loomis again. Father, can I get paid? <laughs> and then Traver, the intern, who's and then we get to night. escape to New escape. I mean, escape uh, escape from New York. I. I don't know. Like I like Ernest Borgnine, but there's some moments yeah. where I'm oh. I'm a little. I don't know how much help he's getting. Um, <laughs> and yeah. but there's some other, but like some of those guys at the wrestling match or the big fight. There's a couple of kind of sour notes in Valley in the movie. The, some of those guys. Everything in Union Station is the movie's Valley, and then how we quickly cut to nighttime. I, I still don't understand. But yeah, that's the day after his insertion into New York. That that night is amazing. The day is meh. I'm a, yeah. It's a, yeah. I, I would like I would like five minutes to fall out of this section. Yeah. Right so, here. but the thing there is not a single bad performance in it, including the two guys in the helicopter. They're trying to shoot the dog. Those guys are great. It's it's so good. The dog is amazing. Jed What's that dog? Because yeah, yeah. The and he was dog. the he was Natty Gann's dog too, yeah. right? Oh, dog oh. And stuff. He's like a great dog actor. Yeah, oh, I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So they had an all star cast all the way down to the animal actors. Yeah. You know, Amazing. And again, we're back to the economy of storytelling. So we're let's, let's bottle everyone into a location. Let's we have a finite cast. We don't need extras. We don't need any of that. We just have guys that are everyone is cast perfectly for their role. And this is where Carpenter shines. I feel like Carpenter shines when it's the mo- at the most simple. Mm. And like that's not to say that some of his bigger, more bombastic, more. Uh, I, I keep saying like complex, but that's not really what I'm talking about. Like busier movies, I guess. Mm-hmm. I like a lot of those too, like the They Lives and and so on, um, and even uh, you know in the Mouth of Madness. And but but when he's like really focused, he's perfect. He's like a perfect director for that kind of situation, and that's why this movie works so well because everybody knows exactly what the role is, including Carpenter and Cundy, and you get more Coney with the score. So that's a little. That makes this one a little bit of an outlier with the movies that we're talking about, right? It's our first non-Carpenter scored movie that he's made, period, right? Except for maybe the TV movies, I don't know. But even Assault for, on Precinct 13, he scored all the way up to uh, New York. And then this one, it's kind of interesting. Why? Why did he did he want to just want to work with somebody once? It was or a union it like, thing. Just like Tarantino? Oh, it was a, it it was was a, a union studio thing. thing. Okay. They, he, he had to, yeah. So they, oh, and he, and I, he, he liked mean. Morcone. Um, but I think I read somewhere that there was also some, he had, Morcone recorded lots of elements and then Carpenter took Mm -hmm. a lot of those elements and moved them around and changed things. And there's some tracks on the soundtrack album that aren't in the movie. So, right. And I will say as much as I love Ennio Morcone, this is the least, my least favorite score of the movies we've talked about today. Mm. I mean, I really love, as Jason obviously does, because he goes all the way to Milwaukee to see him. Yeah. I love 
John Carpenter as a composer. Yeah. I have a ton of records that are John Carpenter, Christine, all these soundtracks that are just so I can sit around and listen to this movie, this filmmaker guy diddle around you, on, his, you on know, the keyboard, but I love it. Something occurred to me as I was reading uh, a little bit about Carpenter's early life and uh, his music that he, Tommy Lee Wallace, I think they played in a band together and Carpenter's always been playing, a, he's always been a musician. And mm-hmm. you think about all of the contemporaries of those movie brat groups, you know, all of the people that are more or less the same age as him, Spielberg, Locus Coppola, Schrader, all those guys, who he's not part of that cadre of, you know. But all those directors I think about, and he's the one who's the musician. Carpenter's mm-hmm. the rock and roll guy. And mm-hmm. none of those other guys are musicians. Or or if they are, I certainly don't know anything about it. I don't think Walter Hill has a, has a rock band and gigs occasionally. I mean, so... He seems like he probably has a guitar around the house, though. Yeah. I mean, Crossroads, you know. I don't, I don't know. know, but Walter I'm just Hill, saying. Maybe yeah, Steve Vai thought, taught a, him a thing or two. And he's in a tribute band because he, he loved Bruce Willis's music, so it's Walter Hill and the Decelerators, I think it's called. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. So I don't know. I just The Departure I, of Bruno? I just, I, <laughs> I just find that to be an interesting thing about Carpenter is that he is this yeah. – he's a musician as much as he is a filmmaker, and I just think that's pretty, pretty interesting. I think yeah. he does what interests him, whether it's music or making movies or video games. And when his interest fades or wanes or he's tired or he feel like he's he's he doesn't I don't I don't need what they're offering. Then he can walk away from it because he's got other interests. Right. He's not a guy. Which I'm sure makes the studios the crazy. Yeah. Not a lot of leverage. I mean, I think that Universal has treated him really poorly when you think about what happened after yeah. the thing and canceling Firestarter and. Like, you know, he, he, it's just interesting because he, you know, he was going to do that creature from the black lagoon remake for sure. I mean there, and yet it ever seems to fully gel and it's, I don't know. It's interesting. I mean, he's a, he's definitely a maverick. Yeah. He passed on fatal attraction. He passed on the golden child. Mm -hmm. Uh, Top gun was offered to him. Santa Claus, the movie. One of the worst movies ever made was offered Oof. to him, and he passed on Exorcist Three, which <laughs> yeah. Blatty yeah, then directed did, did himself, that. and which Morgan. I got to tell you, I would like to have seen a, a John Carpenter's Golden Child, because there Eddie Murphy's right in the middle of his like peak as a movie star, and that movie's a big misstep in in his run. Like we could almost do an Eddie Murphy quadfecta had he had John Carpenter maybe made the golden child. Like if we did an actor quadfecta, cause he had a nice run there, but that movie sucks. But at John Carpenter, it's kind of material. I think he could have worked with. It'd been interesting to see him work with a guy like Eddie Murphy. I wonder what that would have been like. Right, but no, I never heard that. This is the first ego. I've ever heard of yeah. it. Yeah. I, don't yeah, I mean, it's uh, anybody like that, except may- maybe a Chevy. Chevy Chase. Yeah. But Chevy, Chevy Chase. Chase yeah, an and that was a like disaster. That. Yeah. Yeah. And he made a terrible movie. I don't think, I think they liked uh, each honestly, other. I think it wasn't a good. No, well, I think they. I don't think. I it was think a, Chevy Chase could count on one hand the people that he likes, and they right. like him too. Right. I mean, it seems. It seems, but and Eddie Murphy, yes, big ego, but also uh, I think a way more affable guy than Chevy Chase, and and did have repeat, you know, like worked with people over and over again at different times. So it's not like he was. I, I've never heard that Eddie Murphy was super difficult or anything, but that was the kind of material that I think Carpenter could have worked with. Mm. 
And now that you say that, I've never heard the the Golden Child thing. I I now I kind of want to. I want that and the Firestarter. Uh, I really want to see that Firestarter. I just learned about that. I did not know about that. And but you told really me you found like the see that. You, you found the script on the Internet Archive. Yeah, the, it, so I got to go look. The Internet for that. Archive has the I've script. I've always wanted yeah, to read well, it. I'll send it to you. Yeah, I, I want to read it too. And uh, but that yeah, the Bill Lancaster thing. It's like what really great screenwriter. Like I love the bad news. It's my favorite baseball movie. Mm. I adore that movie. That's a great movie, it, and it's because it's it's really well directed, but it's also really well written. And so is the it's this movie, the thing that we're talking about right now. What happened? Like what happened? Why didn't he get to? He passed away, but um, Man, it's just like, like his, did the thing kill his career completely, or was he? I don't know. I, I I haven't looked at the timeline. I don't know if he passed away. Certainly killed the you know killed Firestarter. So yeah, I don't yeah. know. Like I don't I don't God, know. So sad. I should add that um, if people want to hear more about us discussing the thing, we did a yeah. multi episode in the regular Four feed episodes where we sort of took it apart structurally and spent a lot of time on it. So I, I yeah check out that episode. It's back there somewhere in the in the ancient archives. Yeah, go back, go back in our on our feed, and you can find that's might be part of the reason why we're not actually talking about the movie that much in specifics is because we really we really talked about it a lot. Maybe it's better just to lead you back to those. Uh, uh, but for the sake of this show and 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 you know the objective of the show, I think this is a truly great film. Like I think that we've I think we settled that, and within the first few seconds we were talking about it. But um, just to me, it just doesn't get much better. Like if there's you know, if you're going to force me to take five films with me that I have to watch for the rest of my life, this might be one of them. I think one, it's highly one likely of the best it would films be. of one of the best summers yeah. of all time. Yeah, I mean, it was. Oh, know. I think it's the best film yeah. of that summer. I think Ooh. Blade Runner. No, Blade no, Runner? I like this better than Blade Runner. Conan. No. Was the Road Warrior like out that summer too? Oof. Yeah. Ooh. That's close. So now we're getting close. Star Trek Two. Star Trek two. Yes. Tec- Better than Wrath of No, no. I'm sorry. Road, Road, Road Warrior was '81 technically, though, right? Was it? But yeah. but it released in such a weird way. I think that a lot of people didn't get it till '82. But yeah. Um, what is? Yeah, obviously a great summer. Yeah, we had your Firefox. Yeah, well, general. hold on. Just take it easy. I'm kidding. I, I'm no. kidding. I'm not adding Firefox. <laughs> Firefox is not a good movie. You had your Tron. <laughs> you know, there are movies that I like. Star liked, Trek 2, right? That was that. I, yes, that was Star well, Star Trek 2. True. And Poltergeist. I mean, it was an Poltergeist. amazing summer. I think, amazing I think Poltergeist summer. is great. I love Tron, but again, we're back to Blue Thunder territory. Right. I love Tron. I recognize it's not a great film. 83. Yeah. What was? Yeah. Blue Thunder, I think it was maybe 83. It was 82. 82. See, again. No, uh, maybe, it, no, it was 83 because Mitch and I were just talking about the we summer say the of 83. Next 1939 and how weirdly poor year. it is. Uh, 82 is so great. And then it, Mitch and I were looking at the box office of 83 and it was sad. What was It Champ? was really what sad. Was, was Je- well, Jedi oh. would have been tops, right? Well, Jedi and then Octopussy and then oh, I forgot what the third. I just remember that uh, Tootsie was like way down the list. It was kind of, I was like, oh, I thought Tootsie. But when we figured out it came out at Christmas, so it was Octopussy actually more of an 84. Pretty creaky. Anyway. pretty creaky. Yeah. No, that, the whole list was pretty creaky. The 83 list was pretty creaky. So probably right. be, so talking be, we'll probably be talking about a few of those movies maybe in the in the, uh, in the the extras that will come along mm-hmm. on this. Well, in 83, uh, we can do an episode, episode called like the non-fecta, like where like there's not one good movie 
in like four in like in like a bunch of movies. You can do that <laughs> in a whole summer, right? The entire like, summer. Like the Michael Richie, well, pick, or pick, the, pick right, your nineties. Any the summer of the nineties. <laughs> Ted Post. That would be great. Always back to Ted Post. <laughs> Uh, he, he is have a, you ever he is have we ever recorded an episode where jason didn't mention he Ted? my byline for mediocrity uh, uh, he's, he's okay it's just all right but yes right. i i think it, there is a case to be made that not only is it carpenter's best film might very well be the best movie of 1982 and it's a genre mm -hmm. movie and that's a big statement but this movie is that fucking good so yep. that's a hill i'm not gonna die on but i'll be wounded on so the four we've got are Halloween, The Fog, Escape from New York, and The Thing. Our weakest so, link being The Fog. Right, so right. So we're vote. Let's put it to a vote. I mean, I think we know that this, how it's going to turn out. But Jason, <sighs> do you give John Carpenter a quadfecta here? No. Do you no. bestow upon him the quadfecta? Not, not, I don't a, either. Not a Coppola level, not a hawk, like a Hawks level. Not, no, no. no. I, 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 you know. Sorry. I, I, it's, it's a little at that John Landis level. Like, like of the four that you're citing, there's one that doesn't quite belong in there. There's a five foot four dude next to the six footers. And it's only obvious when you look at the picture of the group. And in this case, yeah. like the fog, do I queue it up pretty much every October? Absolutely. Will I continue to do that? And will I defend it and love it? Absolutely. Is it at the level of these other three? It is not. I think if you went to a person and who had never seen a John Carpenter film, mm. And you showed them the fog first. They would go, "Holy shit, John Carpenter's an amazing director! What a film! Incredible!" And then when you showed them the other three movies, they might say, "They they might have forgotten about the fog." <laughs> That's what it's okay. like. That it's really great, but it gets it gets kind of swarmed by the other movies. They're so much better to me, and it's definitely a step down. So on the, in the spirit of it being a level line straight across the way that the Godfather's conversation in Apocalypse Now is for Coppola, there's a bump, and that's the fog. So I can't give it the quadfecta either. Yeah, Mitch, would you have? You ended up being the last the last guy. You were more um, effusive about the fog than we were. I am. So maybe you would have. I would have. I give him, I've got, John, I've got your quadfecta award here. Just printed it up on the 3D printer, and if you want to come and get it, uh, I, I've got one for you. These guys are stingy; they won't give you one, but I will. That award just says participant. I, <laughs> I can see it from here. It just says participant for Christ's sake, Mitch. You're the worst. You are just awful. A whole four thousand dollar 3D printer, and you crap out participant. Jesus Christ! And Mitch, I, I'll say this, and I'll, I'll make this prediction now. We're going to put a poll out, you know, on Facebook and Twitter. To the to the listeners, and I'm going to bet they agree with you. I'm going to bet that Jason and I take some shit over this, and that most people are going to agree with you that he that he got it. But we'll see. We'll okay. see. It'll be interesting to see how that vote uh, breaks down. But um, uh, let me ask you this: Would Christine even come close? I think for us to talk about, I think for us to talk about those movies, you're going to have to go to the Patreon. And hear and hear us talk about that. Yeah, we're gonna do our. I'm just curious, We're all gonna though. bring our one one Carpenter movie that's not in the four. Yeah. That uh, mm -hmm. if we could slide it in to one of these spaces, that it would plenty. it would be the the it would make for a quadfecta. All you go, and since fans, Mitch, tune in. 
I'll tease that. And since uh, and since Minch mentioned it, we should say, yes, we have a Patreon. It is at patreon.com forward slash alien minute. You can subscribe there at two different levels, either $2, which gives you one episode a month, or $5, which gives you every episode that we record going forward. 